0: Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles or uh, smart, um, smart devices, go ahead and open up to the book of James. As you just saw in that video, uh, we're going to spend the next several weeks walking through this book, uh, verse by verse, um, talking about just the very theme there of that book, which is, is that faith works. In other words, faith is not some idea or an ideal that just looks nice on a plate or on an Instagram post or, or something posted on the wall, but it's actually a transformational truth. Christianity is made for reality and for day-to-day living. And if we understand the value of faith in our life, then it can radically change the choices we make on a daily basis. Now, this morning's message is entitled, Heads Up, 7-Up. Now, some of you are smiling because you know why I named it that. It's after a game we used to play in elementary school. Just by a show of hands, how many of you ever played that game, Heads Up, 7 Up, Growing Up? Okay, awesome. We're going to play right now, Heads Down. I, no, just kidding. We're not actually going to do that. Um, for those not familiar, Heads Up, 7 Up is a game that teachers use to trick children into being quiet. And, uh, and so what they would do is you would select several people, usually seven if it's large enough, and they would go up to the front of the class, and then everybody else had to put their heads down. And then those seven people would walk around and either they would tap the head um, or if the, head, if the class was too aggressive, the, the teachers would have you put your hand out with your thumb up, okay? And then you have to tap this person's thumb or the person's head and then uh, without anybody else looking and then you go back to the front of the class and you have to try to guess uh, who came by and tapped your hand or tapped your head. And so heads up, seven up. Now, um, I found a secret to winning the game and that was instead of putting your head down on the desk... What you would do, or what I would do, is I would put my head down on the edge of the desk, and that was because then, as people walked by, someone said it. You can see their shoes, and so you'd see their shoes, and then, um, and so when they come up, like Sally, I know it's you. They're like, "How did you guess that every time?" And so, um, here's the thing: uh, we're going to talk about the new year. Everyone is talking about goals and new year, new you. This is what we're striving after. I mean, and I love goals. I mean, I know one of my goals is to lose 15 pounds this year, one weekend, 18 pounds to go. And, uh, you know, we're, we're working hard on goals. Some of you are just getting that. That's okay. Um, and, and so um, I love goals, but the reality is, is that life comes at you hard and comes at you fast. And so I'm actually going to talk to you this morning about three guaranteed tests of your faith. In other words, these are three difficulties and challenges that are going to come your way. Now, in one sense, that could be seen almost as the most depressing (laughs) New Year's message, like, hey, welcome to 2019. Here you go. But I want to think of it more like heads up, seven up, because if you can get at least a picture of the shoes walking by, like if you can get a heads up and know, hey, these are three challenges coming my way, when they do actually face you, you can call it out for what it is, and then you can have victory in that moment and move through that. And I truly believe that 2019 could end up being the best year ever for you. So, in your Bibles, go ahead and open up to James if you're not there already. Um, but I want to give you a little bit of background of uh, a little bit of background of the book as we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. But the background actually comes directly out of the first verse. So let's go ahead and read verse one here together. James, chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Now, a couple of things in this verse that gives us that background. First of all, when a lot of these people write letters, when apostles write letters, they identify themselves initially. And so I kind of think of like my mom, who I love my mom, my mom's tall of the earth, um, when she texts me, she still like writes little letters. And so like, even though I know it's from her... She signs every text, love mom, like in her text to me. And so, um, and so I love getting those texts and I love getting that identification, even though I already know the number that's coming in. And, um, and so, but in the same way in these letters here, uh, that's what the author is doing. It's like, James, okay, well, who is James? Well, he is a servant of God and the Lord of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like me, when I used to read the Bible, I would skim over the first verse or two because it's a greeting. It's like, that's not really exciting. But I don't want you to miss, um, let's go ahead and put the verse on the screen. I don't want you to miss this. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word Lord is crucial to this letter. And the reason is the author of this letter is actually the half-brother of Jesus, no, it's been argued. Well, maybe there was a different James. There's like twelve different James mentioned in the New Testament. Um, some people thought maybe it was James, the son of Zebedee. Um, who, but the problem with that was that he's actually killed off in Acts chapter eight, and then the other James is it has this, leads this council in Acts chapter fifteen. And and you have and this is the James we're talking about. So James, the half brother of Jesus, who did not believe that Jesus was God throughout his life. I mean, let's be real. How many of you would believe that your sibling was of God, right? That's, that's, that's not possible. You're like, no, I know they're not God. I know that. The same thing you say about like a spouse, right? Well, I know they're not God. Well, um, imagine also growing up with the brother of being, being the brother of Jesus. How difficult that would be. You do something wrong and Mary and Joseph are like, gosh, why can't you be more like Jesus, Right? And if something breaks, something goes down, and they come in, and the two of them are standing there, who do you think was the one who broke it? Right? Or, okay, James and Jesus went to a wedding. First miracle. Jesus turned water into wine. Okay, what about the next wedding that James went to without Jesus? They start running low. They start looking at James like, hey, you know what your brother did last time. Okay, so, so James walked through his life, and he did not believe that Jesus was, in fact, God. So what changed? Well, we actually learn in Corinthians 15 that when, J- when James saw the resurrected Jesus, when Jesus died on a cross and then rose again, and then appeared to James at that moment, his life completely changed. And the least likely person to believe him as Lord and Savior actually did, and not only did so, but actually led the Christian movement in the heart of the city of Jerusalem, So the center of religion, he led the church in the center of Jerusalem. And actually, he ended up dying preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So not only did he believe it, he actually died believing it. Now, some tradition stories have it that uh, he was actually pushed off the temple um, because they invited him up to the temple to say, no, we want you to, to preach and proclaim and so they invited James, this is um, traditional stories here, that James, this author, was actually invited up to the top of the temple, started preaching, they pushed him off. Like we're talking, this is like TV, like scandalous TV show reality here, but he didn't die actually when he fell. And so he stood up or, um, or sat up and actually said, Lord, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And then actually tradition has it that he was stoned for his faith. And so James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, is a half-brother of Jesus. He's leading the church in uh, in Jerusalem. He writes this letter. This is actually seen as uh, one of the oldest letters of the New Testament, probably written around the mid-40s A.D., And and he actually uses, because he he grew up with religion um, in the Jewish faith, um, just not believing in Jesus until the resurrection. And so he actually takes the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and then he takes the book of Proverbs and he kind of mixes them together and gives us one of the most practical books in the entire Bible. I say that because there's 108 verses in the book and over half of them are direct imperatives or commands to you and to me. And other words, hey, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And so it's very practical, it's very personal, and it, and it demonstrates to us that faith works in the Christian life, and it can be applied each and every day of our lives. And I like to say faith is a lot like buying paint at Home Depot, okay? It's not going to change anything in your life unless you go home and apply it, right? And so let's go ahead and apply this today, and let's dive into it. He's right into it. Twelve tribes um, dispersed throughout, they're facing persecution. It's kind of a generalized letter and saying, okay, you're facing suffering, you're facing trials, and so let me share th- these things with you. And so we're going to talk about three guaranteed tests of your faith this morning. Let's, uh, the, uh, well, before we jump into that, let me just give you an overall premise that I'm going to work from, and then we'll, we'll you'll see how this premise works out in these, verse, these first 18 verses of the chapter. And the premise is this, if you're taking notes, write this down. Your outlook impacts your outcome. Your outlook impacts your outcome. You might not be able to change a situation initially, but if you change how you view that situation, if you change your perspective, it ultimately changes the outcome of the problem. Your outlook impacts your outcome. And so the first test we're going to see in these first couple verses is this. The first test of your faith is one of trials. Trials. And trials are really the battle of doubt. When you face a trial, you're fighting the battle of doubt. But don't take my word for it. Let's, Let's see what James has to say. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, and that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I want to pause there for a second, because, again, this seems kind of counterintuitive. It's a new year, we're excited, woo, best year ever. First thing he says, count it joy. All right, I like that. When you face trials. Okay, that doesn't go together. Okay, that's a, that's a paradox. There, it doesn't seem to fit. It's like jumbo shrimp. Okay, um, it's it's two things that don't go together. Um, you know what I mean? It's um, it, you can think there. I was going to say um, cowboys and Super Bowls, so they don't go together normally. But <laughs> I'm a Bears fan. Okay, this is our year. Say This is our year. Um, so count it joy in you face trials. Notice though, he's, a couple things. The word count is an active word. So one of consider or acknowledge. So in other words, you're not receiving joy, you're acknowledging joy or considering it joy. Not if you face a trial, but when you face a trial. Now I thought to myself, how in the world can you consider it joy when you face trials? Then the other day it came to me... um, In a a form of illustration this way, Uh, one of the things I like to do, but I'll be honest, I don't do a ton of, but I'd like to do a little bit more as our kids get older and more active, um, is hiking. Um, You know, you don't do a ton of hiking in Ohio, um, and I mean, there's some cool spots, but not really where, in Arizona, there's actually a lot of cool hiking places, which is really awesome. Now, when you want to hike in Arizona, what is one thing, especially as it gets hotter, what is one thing you cannot go hiking without? Water, okay. So you have to pack water, and if you've never if you've gone hiking without water, you never forget that again, right? Because <laughs> you need it, and so you pack the water. Now, question for you: when do you have the water? Before the journey begins. Now, when are you most appreciative of the water? During and at the point when you are the most thirsty. Think about that for a second. You pack the water, you have the water with you before the journey begins. But then when you're at the hottest point in the middle of the desert where you're most thirsty, that is when you become most grateful for the water that you already have. I think the same thing is true when it comes to joy. You see, we sing about Jesus coming, joy to the world. See, joy was brought to us. And then in Galatians chapter 5, Joy is described as the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you come to faith in him, he actually gives you joy. He gives you, and guess what? He is described as the living water. It is an endless supply. And so you're given this endless supply of water, which means when you are going through a difficult time, when you are going through a trial... When you are most spiritually and emotionally thirsty, that is when you're going to be most grateful for the joy that you've taken with you on this journey. Some of us forget that we've, we've taken water. Imagine how crazy it would be if you went hiking and you have the backpack. Okay, you have the water there and you're just like, oh, I'm so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. And the person you're hiking with would be like, hey, uh, You have water, right? Like, I I sometimes lose stuff. Um, I think the the weirdest one was when I was talking to my wife on the phone. Uh, I say that because I turn like, I can't find my phone anywhere. And then, oh, sometimes we do that with joy. We're going through a difficult time, a difficult circumstance, and we forget that we've been holding it the whole time. See, joy is not a focus of where you are, joy is focusing on whose you are. We're just saying that who God says we are. And so we take that joy with us. Now he says when you meet trials of various kinds, because he's not gonna go in listing the different types of trials you can face. So he's not going to talk about the conditions of trial, but rather the attitude and your response to that. And so that's what I'm going to focus in on today. Because there's all kinds of trials, and they're very difficult, and they're very strong. Some relational, some financial, some physical. Sometimes a combination of those things. We have to understand that this is a guy who was going through suffering himself, facing persecution, and ultimately died for his faith. So he understands going through difficult situations. And so he says, when you face those, Know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, perseverance. It it creates, it it molds, it shapes. And then it says, let that take full effect that you may be perfect. Or other translations use the wordings may be mature and complete. So I did some research on that word. And that word perfect or mature and complete actually means wholeness. Now think about this. We live in a fractured world, right? Right? You just turn on the news, you go through social media, and you see that our society is fractured. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are fractured. We say one thing, and then we do the other, right? We, We want to do something, but then we do something else. And we have this dual nature that we fight within ourselves already. And it's difficult, right? Well, in a fractured world, what James is saying, pursue wholeness. And that you go through trials so that God will shape you and make you whole, make you complete, make you stronger. So this is concept of counting your um, trials as joy. Let's keep reading though. Verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, and that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, that he is a double minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, it seems weird to tie wisdom with trials. Like, usually, when you go through a difficult time, you want peace, you want healing, you want comfort. But what James says is, what you really need more than anything right now is wisdom. And if you you don't have it, just ask. God gives generously. But he says, ask and believe. Because again, it's a battle of faith. It's a battle of doubt. And, And then I realized that doubt is what creeps in when we face a difficult situation, isn't it? Think about it. Doubt is the main reason behind the question of why. Something happens to you. God, why? You start doubting his goodness. You start doubting if God's there. You start doubting his presence. You start doubting God's plan. You start doubting your self-worth. You, st- you start doubting humanity in general, right? It's a very common cycle. Somebody hurts you in the past. You vow that's not gonna happen again. A new relationship enters your life, and guess what happens? You are hesitant to trust them. Why? Because past pain equals present fear. And that's why doubt comes in. But he says, ask for wisdom and ask by believing it without doubt. Because if you doubt, you're like the rolling waves moving, crashing back and forth of the winds. And that's not an easy place to be. You know, before starting this church, I served for 12 years as a youth pastor And one of my um, not-so-proud moments was uh, when I took a group of students uh, out of state, and uh, we were at a water park, and I love sports, um, but I have the world's worst balance. Like, I can't skate, I can't ski, I can't rollerblade, like anything under my feet, I just fall. I just like, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, yes, okay? I have no balance whatsoever. And so um, we were in this indoor water park with students, and they had those uh, surfing machines, you know, with the waves, like, so you could surf, and, like, all my students were doing it. Like, come on, come on, you can do it, come on, look, it's just standing there. And then I saw, like, a six-year-old kid do it, and I'm like, okay, I got this. And so I saw student go, student go, student go, six-year-old student go, I'm like, okay, I can do this, right, I'm a grown man kind of, and I can do this, and, um, and if I, you know, get scared to wet myself, the water will cover it up, so, um, so I go, and no joke, um, there is this teenage worker, she probably was not even 14, 15, I felt so bad, she was tiny thing, and I'm terrified, but I can't let her know, and so I, the water's going, I'm on the board, and I'm like, I'm losing balance, and I have a death grip on the shoulder of this little 15-year-old <laughs> Girl, and I'm, I'm struggling, and, and she's like, okay, you can go, and I'm like, not yet, and like the students are all lined up watching me, like, yeah, I'm like, ah, I'm like, help me, and like, ah, I got it, and so, so finally, for fear of just dragging her into the, the water, I let go, and I'm like, and it's going, and I look at our students, I'm like, I do this, why, I don't know, I don't know, okay, you know what's coming, I'm like, ah, like this, boom, board goes back. I go forward. And here's the problem, okay? The water is created to shoot as much water as possible so that you can simulate surfing. I'm a large person. So I got far enough out into the water. The board went that way. I'm I'm, the water's too strong for me to fall forward, but I'm too big to push me backwards. So it started like a minute-long tumble of me in the wave over and over and over again. And the only thing I'm thinking is, don't lose my shorts. So I'm just like this, <laughs> and I'm flipping and flipping and out of control, and finally the, enough water shot me out backwards, and I sit up and go... Now, in that moment, the water just washing me over and over, turning, 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 flipping, 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 and seemingly I'm not going anywhere. That is the picture of doubt running in your life. We've all been there. We're like, "Ah, I just don't know. I don't know. Ah, I don't know. God, I think you've called me here, but I don't know. Is, Is he the one? Is she the one? I don't know. What am I supposed to do? What's, what's the direction of my life? What, am I supposed, what decision am I supposed to make? How am I supposed to respond? Why is this happening? And we just, we just bombard ourselves with questions, 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 and we doubt. He says, don't. <laughs> Ask for wisdom, and God will give it to you. Uh, we have several people in here, in this room, actually, that are commercial pilots. Excellent pilots. They've been flying for years and do an incredible job. But I find it interesting that no matter how much experience a pilot has, the pilot cannot land the plane without direction from where? Control tower. You see, the control tower sees things that the pilot doesn't see. In the same way, God sees things that we can't see. And so when you are in a difficult circumstance, when you're facing a trial, ask for wisdom and for perspective. Because if God's not going to change the circumstance, he can change your perspective of the circumstance. And guess what? You've packed water already. So count it as joy. And drink from the living water that is the spirit of God. So we have these trials. But what do we do? Because there's so many trials. I can't list them all out. Well, I want you to think of like a Roomba. Familiar with the Roombas? Awesome, little miniature robot vacuum cleaners that are going to one day gang up against us and rule the world. Anyway, um, no, these little circular disks just vacuum the house. You don't have to do anything, it just turns on and it goes. And it also works as a ride for small animals and toddlers, we found that literally walked out with Chloe standing on it, who already has better balance than me. I'm not jealous. Anyway, I walked out to our two-year-old standing on the Roomba going like this, just going around the house. (laughs) But I saw an interesting story of the Roomba, the inventor, Um, and he said that, you know, how did you create this invention? Because there's no way you could know the dynamics and the dimensions of every single house he said, well, we didn't try to know the dimensions of every single house. We gave a simple set of rules that it adjusts. So turn here, turn right, turn this, turn left, turn here. And it came up with a formula that it, if repeated, it's going to cover the whole house. So rather than try to figure out every possible dimension of house, it gave us a couple, a couple set of rules that follows that it knows that it's going to cover it. In the same way, instead of trying to cover every possible trial you could ever face, I want to give you a couple rules that you can start, that you can apply, and that you can use these whatever trial comes your way this year in 2019. Let me give you four. First thing you want to do, we just talked about, is count it as joy. Remember, you've packed water with you. Whatever trial you're facing, find the joy in that. Secondly, you want to pursue wholeness. Um... I had a student one time who was going through a difficult situation, and let's just say for um, sake, he was was up here, and the situation brought him here. So he was up high, and it brought him low. And after talking with him, I, I shared with him, look, your problem is you keep trying to get back to where you were, and that's not possible. But the good news is, instead of from going low to high, you can go to a new space, and it's more complete, it's more whole, and you're stronger for it. And you're, you're better for it. And some of you have gone through a difficult situation. You went from high to low. And you're like, I can't get back. I can't get back. I can't get back. I'm here to tell you, you, you won't. But that's okay. Because while you can't get back to where you were, God wants to take you somewhere where you haven't been yet. So count it as joy. Pursue wholeness. The third one is ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Ask for perspective in the situation. Say, God, what do you want me to learn in this situation? Don't waste your trial by not learning and growing stronger through it. And the last one, not so- solely talked about in here, but we're gonna talk about it more throughout the rest of the book, is a look to serve. Some of the best way to grow through your trial is to actually look for ways to serve others going through a similar situation. When you get the focus off of yourself and onto helping others, it changes things, okay? So the first test you're gonna face is trials. But the second test I promise you you're going to face this year is the test of treasure, which is really a battle of comparison. It's a battle of comparison. Let's read verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat. I feel like we understand that verse, being in Arizona. And withers the grass. The flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So you have this concept of wealth. And the truth is, is that Jesus, and through James here, flips this concept. And so, in other words, if you're poor, (laughs) understand that your value is so much greater. And you have access to a greater glory. If you're rich, understand that that wealth is fleeting, but you have access to a greater story. You know, living in America automatically puts us in like the top 1% of the world, riches wise. And so we have to understand that whether you're envious of what people have and you don't, or you're prideful of what you have, either way, money becomes an idol. And see, we're going to talk about money throughout our time here at Mission Grove as a church. Not because God wants money out of your wallet, but because he wants the idol out of your heart. And so sticking with this idea of the Roomba here is that um, just three things, if you're taking notes, just to remember when it comes to money. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because it actually breaks it down a lot more later in the book. So we're going to talk more about this later in the series. But three things for right now. Number one, remember that wealth is temporary. It doesn't matter how much you have. If you're not content in that moment, you're going to want more. It's temporary. It doesn't last. It's like the grass in the fields. It just burns up when the sun gets hot. Second thing is remember that wealth is a tool, not a title. Money is a tool, not a title, doesn't give you permission to do anything, but it gives you the ability to give and to serve and love, maybe in a unique way. So it's temporary, it's a tool. The third thing is to love all people regardless of what they can give you. He's especially going to jump into that in James chapter 2, so I'm going to save that for a future sermon. But God... Calls us to love all people. Notice that he 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 recognizes and identifies both sides. So, like take David for example. David started out as a shepherd boy, but he ends up a king. The poorest of the poor, the richest of the rich. Yet he was God's the whole time. Money is temporary. It's a tool, and it's used to love others. Okay. And then the last test you're going to face is, a t- is the test of temptation. The test of temptation. Let's continue reading here in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth to death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits and creatures. This is an important passage because it clarifies here that sin comes from our own desire. That means we have to take responsibility for the battles we face. We can't play victim of a trial. Notice that temptation is closely connected to trial. And I think it's fitting because a lot of times when you are going through a difficult time, what do people turn to? Drugs, alcohol, addictions, hurting others. But see, when you turn to those things, that deaden reality. You try to numb the pain and you end up further away the next day. But when you turn to God, it actually deepens reality and you find forgiveness and purpose and joy and freedom. But here's the pattern of sin. Here's what happens. Here's what goes down. First, you have your Inward desire—you can't blame that on anybody else. <laughs> We've fallen, and, and we we desire things that we shouldn't. Then typically we face some type of trigger, right? There's something you see something, you hear something, you experience something, you have a conversation. Something triggers you. Then you rationalize. Well, that's okay. I could do that. Or there are people worse than me. Or I mean, I've al- I've already gone there, so I'm not doing anything bad. We rationalize it then we indulge, and then we always regret. right? Because sin ultimately leads to death. That's a one-way path to death. Some may move slower than others, but there's no good ending there. Um, But he says there's an alternative. Because then he talks about who God is. And so the response is really three things. One, you think about God's judgment. He says, don't be deceived. This leads to death. But two, you think about God's goodness. No, God, there is more. There is better for you. And then he says, you are the first fruits of creation. In other words, of all creation, you are who God values most. And so when you are tempted... It's not the same thing as sin. When you are triggered, when you when you have the opportunity to sin, instead of rationalizing it and indulging, think about God's judgment, God's goodness, and then your own value that you deserve better. You can picture it when temptation knocks on the door. You have two people that can answer that door. You can have your flesh or you can have the spirit. So when temptation knocks on your door, it's whoever you send to the door to answer that is going to lead to the response that you have. Um, Another way to picture temptation and sin is kind of like this way, is that if you're familiar with diplomatic immunity, diplomatic immunity happens when someone from another country lives in a country that is not their own and therefore are not bound by the laws of that other country. So, in other words, they cannot be prosecuted because they don't belong to that country, they belong to something else. In the same way, when you have faith, you have spiritual diplomatic immunity, meaning that Satan can't touch your identity. He can't. If God is for you, who can be against you? You are a child of God. He can't touch that. So, what he does, if he can't touch your identity, he attacks your activity, If he can't touch your identity, he attacks your activity. And so what happens is he waits for our own desires to put themselves out there, and we willingly give handles to Satan and says, oh, you want to do that? Okay, and he grabs onto the handles that we give him and then tosses us around like that wave. I promise you, you're going to be tempted this year. But when temptation knocks on the door who are you sending? Are you sending the spirit? Or are you sending your flesh? Are you going to indulge and feel worse? Are you going to focus on the goodness of God, the judgment of God, and your value of him? Because if you do that, you're going to be made whole. As we close, um, and band's going to come up on stage, um, I want you just to understand this that the goal of life is not simply to stop sinning. Right? The goal in life is not simply to stop sinning. The goal is to pursue God and have a relationship. Right? Same thing, a marriage. The goal of a marriage is not to not mess up. How's your marriage? We're not fighting okay, but that's not healthy, right? Right? Parenting, raising a child. The goal of raising a child is not to have them not get in trouble. The goal is relationship. And so if you really, if you really want to win that battle of temptation, in this case, the best defense is actually. An amazing offense. In other words, here's where we're gonna get real practical, okay? You want a strong marriage? Passionately pursue your spouse. Passionately pursue it. Do the things that you fell in love with. Write notes, send texts. Rub their feet if that's their thing. It's not mine. My wife loves her feet rubbed. Again. Me and feet doesn't work. She tried to rub my feet. I almost kicked her in the face. Didn't work out. Okay. The gauge of my marriage is not, well, I didn't mess up today. No, it's, how once did I pursue her? In other words, the goal of Christianity is not simply to not sin, but running after God. Look, I love working out, and I also love dessert, okay? But you know what you don't see? is people in CrossFit eating cake at the same time. Why? Because it's a lot easier to put aside the cake when you're going after something, right? So go after your marriage this year in 2019. Go after relationship with your kids. Go after it in your workplace and pursue it with all that you have. And when you face trials, when you get tested, trust him. You're going to face trials, treasure, and temptation this year. What are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for your son. God, even the brother of our Lord and Savior calls you Lord. God, may we call you Lord here in 2019. May we have faith that works. May we count it as joy when we face trials of many kinds. May we seek your wisdom. God, may we not put our identity in treasure and in comparison of what we don't have or what we do have because we know wealth is fleeting. And God, when we face temptation, may we send your spirit to the door to answer. May we focus on your goodness. And God, as we take communion now as a church, as we pass these elements, God, may we remember the fact that we can have victory over life starts because you died for us. God, as we pass these elements of the bread and the juice that symbolizes what you've done for us, God, may we remember that you make all things new that your mercies are new every morning and that your forgiveness and love is deeper still. As we go into 2019, may this be a new year, a new us, but God, we praise you for being the same. And so God, we ask that you give us a new spirit, a fresh spirit to go after and to pursue relationships, to pursue dreams, to go after life this year with all that we have, trusting you with every test that come our way and counting everything as joy. We love you, God. It's in your son's name we pray.